heartbreaking news hit uh, the media recently about world-renowned Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. After Ravi died last May, uh, more allegations of sexual misconduct surfaced and subsequent investigations confirmed the allegations. Ravi lived a hidden life of sexual immorality and abuse. This is heartbreaking news. How do we make sense of Ravi Zacharias? Joshua Harris was an influential pastor and speaker for many years. His Christian book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, sold 1.2 million copies globally. He preached the gospel. In 2019, Joshua released a statement on Twitter that he was not a Christian. Once a strong advocate for biblical marriage and sexuality, Joshua has now renounced Christ and is openly supportive of LGBTQIA plus lifestyles. He even marched in a gay pride parade. How do we make sense of Joshua Harris? How do we make sense of Peter Enns, Rhett and Link, Bart Ehrman, Rob Bell, Jen Hatmaker, and many others who have deserted Orthodox Christianity? People call these deconversion stories. One-time professing Christians supposedly come to their senses and abandon Christianity for supposedly more rational thinking. Deconversion testimonies often sound honest and heartfelt and intellectual, but it's striking that often deconversion stories include tension over Christian sexual ethics. I find that interesting. How do we make sense of people walking away from Christ? Are deconversion testimonies examples of people losing their salvation? And, and I think our passage today and many other scriptures require a no answer. See, people who truly have salvation don't lose it because God gives it and forever sustains them in it. People in the, the visible church uh, sometimes do walk away from the faith. But that doesn't mean that in doing so, they lost their salvation. It means they were never truly saved because their confession of Christ was hypocritical from the start. This is 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Jesus did say, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Deconversion stories are people proving they never had. And that what they had is being taken away as God's judgment against their hypocrisy and unbelief. Not everyone in the visible church is good soil. Not everyone in the visible church has a fertile heart ready to receive the word of Christ. Jesus described four different kinds of people. People that I'll call hardened hearts, shallow hearts, preoccupied hearts, and good hearts. Only one bears fruit. The rest bear no fruit. I think the, the parable of the sower directs us really to examine ourselves accordingly, looking for the fruit of God's grace and spirit. Honest, spirit-led self-examination is a necessary and helpful part of the Christian life. It's not a bad thing. It's a, it's, it's a really good thing that can lead us into a deeper sense of security in God's grace 
because self-examination can draw our attention to Christ and the fruit that he produces in us. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? See, by self-examination, the elect of God further realize that Jesus Christ is in them. Their self-examination focuses them on the work of Christ in their lives. God doesn't want his beloved children to doubt that they belong to him. He doesn't want them to to suffer from insecurity, but he does call them to self-examination, which can lead to conviction over spiritual sluggishness, can lead to repentance, can lead to a clear conscience and deeper security in Christ, can lead to greater faithfulness. Jesus' parable of the sower helps us with self-examination. Like skillful farmers, we need to know how to think about different types of soils. And we need to know how to think about fruit that the good soil alone produces. So here's the one big point, and then I'll unpack it. Three simple things prove that God has made your heart good soil. You are hearing the word of Christ, believing the word of Christ, and living the word of Christ. Those three things will help you examine and classify the soil of your own heart. Are you hearing the word of Christ, believing the word of Christ, and living the word of Christ? Jesus was sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, facing the beach and teaching, looking out at him from the beach, was, and listening to him were massive crowds. And the first parable that Jesus taught went like this, verses three through eight. A sower went out to sow. So this is a farmer who goes out into the field and he's scattering seed to plant the field. Maybe barley, maybe wheat, maybe flax. And as he sowed, so he's tossing seeds here by hand. There's no broadcast seeders here. Okay, folks, toss them by hand. Some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Now, that farming illustration is easy to understand. Maybe particularly for us in in Lancaster County. We we get it, okay? But what does it mean? What's the point hidden in the parable? Now, we have the advantage now of just reading a few verses later and saying, oh, now I, I get what that means. When the crowds and disciples first heard it, they didn't have the explanation. The crowds didn't understand and neither did Jesus' disciples. Jesus added, verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. And here's where last week is very helpful. When the disciples came to Jesus asking for the meaning, Jesus graciously planted the meaning in their hearts. They were truly blessed by God with eyes and ears to see, and here he was planting the meaning into their heart. Notice in verse 18, Jesus said, hear then the parable of the sower. Now, hadn't they already heard the parable of the sower? 
They heard it on the beach. Here is an imperative. It's a command. I think Jesus was divinely planting the gospel deeper into their good soil. He was putting the secrets of the kingdom of heaven deep into their hearts, which he had cultivated into fertile ground. By grace, they were good soil, receiving his word by faith. Now, before we get too far, understand how the the parable parallels real life. Presumably, the sower is Jesus. In the parable of the weeds later on, the sower is the Son of Man, which is Jesus. So Jesus is sowing. By extension, the sower can also be the apostles and ordained ministers of the gospel whose God-given task it is to preach the gospel. The seed that the sower scatters is the word of the kingdom. Luke calls it the word of God. Mark simply the word. The parable is an illustration then of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven to the crowds. The path, rocky ground, thorns, and good soil all represent the hearts of people and how people respond to the preached word, the preaching of the gospel. Three of the soils or hearts never yield any grain. Good soil, on the other hand, is the only one that does. So let's dig into the soils, all right, from the vantage point of self-examination. As we do, pay close attention to how each soil receives the seeds and how each person receives the word of Christ. He who has ears, let him hear. Number one, do you have a hardened heart? A hardened heart. Look at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The word of the kingdom is the gospel of God's promised Christ coming and saving his people, rescuing them from the tyranny of Satan and the devastating effects of sin and death, bringing his reign and rule to their hearts and lives, governing them by his word and spirit, and in time, returning to consummate his kingdom. Dr. Doriani helpfully noted, quote, the kingdom comes like a seed without compulsion or apocalyptic manifestation. But when it lodges in a prepared heart, how that seed grows, what mighty trees, what fruitful plants it produces, unquote. The word of the kingdom is scattered through preaching and in the case of good soil alone, it falls deep into their cultivated heart, develops strong roots and grows to produce much fruit. Indeed, the fruit of the spirit. This is the beginning of the kingdom in the hearts and lives of God's people. But though the kingdom grows and produces fruit in many people, it does not grow and produce fruit in all people. In verse 19, Jesus describes people physically hearing the gospel but not understanding it, which equates, I think, to not believing it and not repenting to God, not believing, not repenting of God. They don't understand. People can cognitively hear and understand, but actually never spiritually hear and understand. After all, they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. So in verses 4 and 19, the first unfruitful soil 
is the path. It's compacted. It's hardened. It's uncultivated. Seeds cannot penetrate past the hardened surface. The seeds just land and they rest there on the path, never getting into it. The hardened person hears the preached word of Christ, but the word of Christ lands hard against them and never really gets into them. Just like the birds who come and devour the seeds on the path, Satan comes to the hardened heart and snatches away the gospel. They don't believe and they never produce fruit. And folks, the gospel is not at fault either. The gospel's not at fault. The hardened heart is at fault. Calvin said, quote, so then the gospel is always a fruitful seed as to its power, but not as to its produce, unquote. There are people who hear the gospel, sometimes often throughout their life, over and over, sitting in church, over and over, hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but hearing never changes them, never transforms them because the gospel never gets into them. It's possible to hear the gospel often, but never have it plant deeply within the heart, never have it grow, never have it establish roots, never have it produce any fruit. Hardened hearts are atheists and agnostics for sure, but also very religious people. One can be very religious and still shut out the gospel. They are truly hardened soil, hardened hearts. Dr. James Boyce once wrote, quote, what is it that makes the human heart hard? There can be only one answer, sin. Sin hardens the heart, and the heart that is hardened sins even more, unquote. Brothers and sisters, the good heart is cultivated by the Holy Spirit, and therefore it is soft, it is fertile, so that the word of Christ lands on us and goes deep into us so that it can establish strong roots and grow to produce good fruit, good things like, like humility, contrition, faith, repentance, kindness, love, things like that. Number two, do you have a shallow heart? A shallow heart. Look at verses five and six and 20 and 21. The second unfruitful soil is rocky ground. Lots of rocks, little soil. Not good, by the way, for growing things. You guys know this, Lancaster County. Not good. You want good soil, not rocky soil. But there's enough soil to receive the seeds, even to quickly germinate the seeds. But the soil is so shallow that when the sun's heat and light hit the germinating seeds, the plants are scorched. They just wither up and die. Jesus was talking about people with shallow hearts. They hear the word of the kingdom preached and they get really excited about it. I mean, they're all in. We are excited about this. It becomes their obsession for a while. For a while, they buy the I Heart Jesus t-shirt and wear it around everywhere proudly. And they get that bumper sticker that says, honk if you love Jesus, and they put it on a car and they're proud. They, they go to youth group every week and they go to church every week and they're hitting all the Bible studies and they're all in. But beneath the surface, something essential is missing. Roots. Roots are missing, deep and alive and growing roots aren't there. Notice that these 
people hear the word of the kingdom of Christ and immediately receive it with joy. And so from the outside, it, their joy seems to communicate, hey, they really get it. They, they're really amped up about this. They're all in. But it's not spirit-produced joy. It's shallow, superficial, and fleeting joy. It's excitement. It's emotion void of true faith. It's, yes, this gospel is great. Yes, Jesus is amazing. He is good. He is what I've been looking for all along. Wait, this is what the Christian life entails? Wait, this is really hard. I never signed up for this, and they fall away. Luke said, they believe for a little while, and in time of testing, fall away. Now, did they lose their salvation? Was it true faith? Consider this angle on that question. Consider that James says that even demons believe and shudder. That's interesting. There is an evil way to believe in Jesus. It's to know, it's to assent, but to never trust, only to loathe. True faith, please listen carefully to this. True faith, when forged in the furnace of affliction, not only survives, it becomes stronger. True faith, when forged in the furnace of affliction, not only survives, it becomes stronger. True faith has deep roots. Shallow faith never develops roots. Jesus said, verse 21, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. When what he once found exciting becomes the source of his pain, he quickly abandons it for provisional relief. He is short-lived. His confession, his commitment, his compliance, all short-lived. There were no spiritual roots formed in him, so the word of Christ couldn't grow. It couldn't produce anything, no fruit. Tribulation here is pressure. If you think of of people squeezing in on someone precisely because they trust the word of Christ and seek to live it out faithfully, squeezing in on them. Persecution is a chasing after, a wicked hot pursuit of someone because they trust the word of Christ and seek to live it out faithfully. Jesus taught his disciples back in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Shallow hearts don't consider themselves blessed in tribulation and persecution, they don't rejoice. Not, neither are they glad for immediate temporal comfort is more important to them than eternal heavenly reward. To, to quote our brother Timothy Brindle, many couldn't take the heat so they got out the kitchen. They left the faith and fled the saints. We thought they was Christian. To fall away is to be tripped up. One time I was running in Pittsburgh on the sidewalks and I was carrying a CD player, a portable CD player. Do you remember portable CD players? And it had anti-skip, but I had to carry it in a way that it would not skip. 
And so I'm, I'm jogging along and my foot hits a crack. I tucked, man, I tucked, I went down, I rolled and I, on the sidewalk and I ended up with my feet in, in the street. It was hilarious. Honestly, it was hilarious. And in times like that, I really hope someone saw that because that would be a waste if someone was not laughing their heads off. And I admitted in the first service, honestly, if I saw someone bite it like that, I'd be laughing. That's hilarious. That's really funny stuff. So I hope someone was laughing at that. But falling away is falling off the right path. Falling off the right path. We call this apostasy. The word is often used of sin, even used of being offended by Jesus. Why do some people who are so excited about the gospel fall away? Why? Well, they feel the pressure from the world. They're being strongly opposed because of Christ, and that makes them feel very uncomfortable, and understandably so, and, and they fall away from Christ because living out the word of Christ is too hard for them. It's just not worth it. They don't want to pay the cost without a root system holding them fast. They get scorched under the pressure of trouble and affliction on account of Christ. There's no root. Why, why is it, folks, that under pressure, some fall away from the faith while others only get stronger in the faith? What's going on there? Simple. Those who fall away have no root. Those who endure have deep roots. Deep roots. The word of Christ never grew deep down into their shallow soil to give them strength when trouble and maltreatment came. Any hope of growth withered because of rootlessness. Now, how does the scientific community respond to brilliant men and women who believe God created all things? How do they respond to that? How does our culture respond to people who believe in biblical marriage and sexuality and who speak openly about it? How does the culture respond to that? See, without roots, without the word of Christ deeply rooted in your heart, it's just too easy to succumb to the pressure that will come. There's so much pressure from the world and that feels terrible sometimes and it's very difficult. And without deep roots, you just, you just won't make it. Shallow won't survive, won't produce fruit. Dr. Hendrickson wrote, the erstwhile adherent, never a genuine follower at all for his confession did not spring from inner conviction, had failed to consider that true discipleship implies self-surrender, self-denial, sacrifice, service, and suffering. He has ignored the fact that it is the way of the cross that leads home, end quote. That's really good. The way of the cross, the way of suffering for and with Christ leads us home, brothers and sisters. It's the way home to the Father, brothers and sisters, we must not be surface Christians. Surface Christians don't survive. They won't in time. It will be seen that they were not good soil. It, we cannot be surface Christians because surface Christians don't last. Our hearts must be cultivated by the Spirit to be oh so soft and oh so fertile 
so that the word of Christ sends roots deep within us and holds us fast when we suffer pressure because of Jesus. I don't know how you interpret the landscape of America today. I, I, I just want to tell you a little bit of my assessment. I think religious liberties seem to be eroding in America. That's my take. You may have a different take. Oh, that the word of Christ would sprout deep roots in us, deep roots in the church, that we may endure with Christ through tribulation, through persecution, which I think is coming in larger doses. It's, not, it's already here. I just think it's intensifying. We need roots. The church needs roots. Number three. Do you have a preoccupied heart? A preoccupied heart. Verses 7 and 22 tell us that some of the seeds fell among thorns. So more unfruitful soil. See, when seeds start to germinate, they grow, but the, the thorns grab the sunlight and nutrients and twist around the plants and end up choking them to death. Maybe these plants endure longer than the plants in the rocky soil. Either way, neither reach any fruit. Jesus says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The preoccupied person hears the gospel. They, they seem to believe the gospel up to a certain point, but in time, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the growth of the word in their hearts so they never grow long enough to bear any fruit. What are the cares of the world? One translation has worry of the world. Another has worries of this age. Cares of the world are anxieties or worries of this life. There are, folks, incalculable things to worry about in this life. And they can become, for us, obsessions, fixations, preoccupations. Solicitude. It's not a word I use. I, don't even, I, I can't remember what it means, but I have it down here so I can remember what it means. Solicitude is an attitude of excessive attentiveness. Excessive attentiveness. The cares of the world make one excessively attentive to the things of the world. We could say they become preoccupied with the concerns of life, of this life. The cares of this world are powerful thorns that choke out the growth and production of the word of Christ in people. The concerns of this age just overwhelm the person to the point that gospel preaching actually bears no fruit in their life. Deceitfulness of riches also choke and prevent real growth. Wealth, folks, do we not know this living in the Disneyland of America, living in this pot of wealth here, that wealth deludes people, confuses them. How can any good growth come from a heart that is preoccupied with wealth? Can't. Money and possessions are big liars. They make promises they can't keep. But people keep believing the lies of wealth, and they get choked by those lies. Riches cunningly lead many people into this false sense of security. You see, riches do open many doors, and and riches bring pleasures that make the word of Christ seem so lackluster, so boring, so, so irrelevant. 
And sometimes even untrue makes it seem that way. Riches have a way of concealing and anesthetizing true emptiness and pain. And at the same time, creating a facade of false happiness and well-being. Riches are tricky. People begin to think, why do I need Christ when I have all of this? Look what I've done. I've done well for myself. Covetousness and greed strangle the soul. And this is why Jesus taught things like, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think as Americans, we should listen to that. I, I mentioned Rhett and Link earlier. You may not know who they are. Maybe you do know who they are, but they are YouTube sensations. YouTube comedians, really funny guys, uh, celebrities, they're business moguls. They're, their whole business is estimated to be worth uh, $23 million dollars. They were Campus Crusade staff members. They were former missionaries. And now they are former professing Christians. Elisa Childers wrote an excellent article about Rhett and Link and uh, deconversion. And in his deconversion story, Rhett apparently mentioned some big names in Christian apologetics and theology. And he implied that they don't abandon Christianity because they have so much stake in it and so much to lose, so much money to lose. He, he connected their staying to money. But has Rhett considered the same logical, uh, the same logic rather, applied to his own deconversion story? Elisa wrote this. Rhett was careful to say he doesn't think these apologists are intentionally deceiving anyone. This implies that they are, in fact, deceiving people. Then he skillfully planted a positive motive, money. He suggested that if all these apologists and theologians were to recant their stories and change their opinions, their livelihoods would be at stake. Aside from the fact that most apologists have day jobs, this leads to a fair question. What would Rhett and Link stand to lose if they didn't capitulate to culture on an issue like same-sex marriage? Would Jack Black and Daniel Radcliffe guest star on their YouTube channel if they held to the biblical doctrine of marriage and homosexuality? How would it affect their revenue streams and net worth to remain faithful Christians in today's cultural climate? End of quote. What a powerful and striking question. How would it affect their revenue streams and net worth to remain faithful Christians in today's cultural climate? Folks, wealth is deceptive. It lies. When people are preoccupied with the cares of this world and the pursuit of wealth and fame and power, the word of Christ just gets choked in them. Interestingly, Rhett said this, and I want you to think here. Hear what he's saying and think what he's implying. He says this, quote, It's not so much what happens after you die, but what happens while you're alive. End quote. With all due respect, Rhett seems preoccupied with this life. The word sown in red is getting choked in red. And oh, may the grace and mercy of God fall and red and link repent and come back to Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must not be preoccupied with the cares and concerns of this life or our net worth. 
Obsession with this life chokes gospel growth in us. As believers, we must allow the word of Christ to penetrate so deeply within our hearts that it bears fruit and bears fruit in our self-image. It bears fruit in our sexuality. It bears fruit in our marriages and parenting and work and finances and entertainment and everything because that would mean if it's bearing fruit that we're good soil. Number four, do you have a good heart? Now hear me very clearly. I am not talking about a naturally good heart. I'm not talking about an inherently good heart, and I'm not talking about, well, I'm just better than all those pagans and heathens kind of good heart. That's not what I'm talking about. A good heart, by definition, is a heart graciously cultivated by the Spirit of God to receive the Word of Christ, the Word of God. A good heart is a heart readied by the Spirit to receive the Word of Christ by faith. Folks, I've been sensitive about this as I've been thinking about how some of the recent sermons may be coming across, so I want to make this point. We need to guard ever so carefully about an us versus them mentality because that kind of pride in us versus them, well, I'm just a good person and you're not, is not rooted in sovereign grace. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel and how soil becomes good. It's, we cannot, humility and gratitude are fitting, pride and self-righteousness or not, are not. But it isn't prideful in the same way, it's, it's not prideful to consider yourself good soil, if you are indeed good soil. Because by saying you're good soil, is, it's God alone makes the soil good and ready to receive the word of Christ. So in saying I'm good soil is just exalting in God's glorious and sovereign grace for preparing you to receive, to see and hear. According to, to verse eight, good soil, it receives the seeds, the seeds develop deep roots, the seeds grow, and, and these produce fruit. They produce fruit. Another way to say that is that the seeds sowed on the good soil give grain. They give it. Jesus may have been alluding here to Genesis 26, 12 and 13, where Moses wrote this. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. So in Genesis 26, reaping a hundredfold is associated with the Lord's blessing, the sovereign Lord's blessing. And it says Isaac gained more and more. And that should get your mind thinking about what, what I've been preaching here, gain more and more. Aha, for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. Paul said it just right in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but do you know how to finish it? God gave the growth. God gave the growth. It's his sovereign power at work. A hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, whatever it is, it's, it's yield, and it is God-produced growth. God-produced yield. Spirit-produced fruit. Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And right there, I hope you see my main point. 
Three simple things prove that God has made your heart good soil. You are hearing the word of Christ, believing the word of Christ, and living the word of Christ. A, are you hearing the word of Christ? God uses preaching to plant his gospel deep within the cultivated hearts of his people. This parable illustrates this. Good preaching develops good roots in good soil. Good preaching develops good roots in good soil. Heidelberg 65 says that faith comes, quote, from the Holy Spirit who works it, or we could say plants and grows it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments, end quote. So are you good soil? Are you good soil? Are you hearing what God, that which God uses to grow fruit in you, namely preaching. Do you hear by faith in order to grow more fruit? Do you come here expecting to hear the voice of God and expecting it to produce something in you, to leave here to do something with, with what we're doing here, with, with God's word? The disciples came to Jesus ready to hear. Are you coming to Jesus ready to hear? B, are you believing the word of Christ? The good heart hears the word and understands it. And, and I don't think that that means mere cognitive understanding, or we could say assent. I think because fruit is subsequently produced, understands it, must mean spiritually understands it, or receives the word by true faith, because fruit only comes forth from true faith. It doesn't come forth from anything else. So when you hear the word of Christ preached, do you understand it? Do you understand it? Do you both cognitively understand it and do you spiritually understand it, which includes trusting in it? The good heart understands, which leads to fruit. The disciples came to Jesus and they heard and believed. I'm, I'm greatly encouraged by Peter. I identify a lot with Peter and Peter said to Jesus in John 6, 68 and 69, and, and I think this is so appropriate, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? In all of these deconversion stories, where are they going? If they're turning their back on Jesus, who or what is offering something greater than Christ? Where are we going to go if not to the Lord for the words of life? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And implied in that is that he exclusively has the word of eternal life. And we have believed, Peter says, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We must go to the Holy One of God for he's the one that has the answers. He's the one that is the truth. The Holy One of God, the Spirit plants the Word deep, the Word of Christ, deep within good soil so that it inevitably produces fruit. Inevitable. It must. It has to. I want you to think about a tomato plant. I don't know how many of you do container gardening. Maybe you have a huge garden, but think container gardening at this point for those of us who have decks and not ginormous, whatever. So you got the container and you've got the tomato plant growing in there. And if you grab the plant and pull it out of the container, what happens? The dirt remains in the shape of the container and you're looking all throughout it and there's roots shooting everywhere and the roots are holding it all together. It's great. 
The word of Christ growing in good soil is kind of like that. And by the way, what happens on that healthy plant? Boy, those tomatoes, come on, folks. Juicy, you cut them, BLTs. You know where we're going with this? This is delicious. And that comes from good soil, roots down in that good soil. C, are you living the word of Christ? The word always bears fruit in good soil. Hear that again. The word always bears fruit in good soil, period. Are you hearing, believing, and bearing much fruit? Fruit is evidence of growth and life. If there's no fruit, there's no true faith. If there's fruit, a hundredfold, maybe 60, maybe 30, then you know because of the fruit that it's good soil. And that's comforting and that's assuring and that's exciting for the good soil. For those of us who know that the Lord is working in us and producing things. No, we're not perfect, but he's, he's, he's taking us along and he's producing good things in us. And we're comforted and assured because we look at the fruit and say, that's my God working in me. I would not be that way without him. He's helping with that. What is your only comfort in life and in death, Jerusalem church? It's partly that Jesus, quote, by his Holy Spirit, makes you heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. He makes you that. Your good fruit, fruit. Article 24 of the Belgic Confession states, so then it is impossible for this holy fruit to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith but of what scripture calls faith working through love, which leads a man to do by himself the works that God has commanded in his word. Faith working through love is the fruit of the word in good soil. The second Helvetic confession states, and good works, which are good indeed, proceed from a lively faith by the Holy Spirit and are done of the faithful according to the will or rule of God's word, end of quote. We don't make stuff up about how we're supposed to serve the Lord. He tells us and reveals it in scripture. That's how we worship and love him and obey him. The Westminster Confession of Faith 16.2 states this. Please listen carefully. This is a really important statement. These good works done in obedience of God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and living faith. And by them, believers show their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, teach their brothers, give credibility to their profession of the gospel, stop the criticism from the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus for such purpose, that having their fruit of holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. Your good works, done in obedience to God's law, God's law defines what good works are, your good works done in obedience to God's law give credibility to your confession of Christ. That's how we know it's real in you. That's how you know it's real. Are you living the word of Christ? One source gave a few examples of fruit of what it is to live for Christ. None of these are perfect in the saints, but they're there and they're real and they're happening. And he says, trust in Christ, obedience to God, growth in holiness, the fruit of the spirit, love for other Christians, 
positive influence on others, adhering to the apostolic teaching and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within them. Fruit. Fruit. Brothers and sisters, isn't it true that our lives, when we slow down and think of it, reflect all of these soils to a certain extent? We're good soil, but we sense these things in our life. And and we are sometimes hardened, we are sometimes shallow, we are sometimes preoccupied, but we're good soil, legitimately good soil that God is growing good things in. So, So as we fight sin and repent, there can be some dark moments of the soul there, folks, as you know, and so we need assurance. We need something from our Lord and Savior to say, you do belong to me, you are good soil. Heidelberg 86 asks, why we must do good works. Why is it even important? And part of the answer is because that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. Brothers and sisters, when we sincerely strive to obey Christ, it gets ugly sometimes. It doesn't look perfect. It's not. But when we legitimately, like, I want to do what my Father wants me to do, when we're striving with thankfulness and joy, our fruit assures us indeed that we belong to Christ and that his spirit is indeed at work in us producing and giving us fruit. Because the only way that we would do those things is if our Father was giving us grace and spirit to do them. So when we're doing them, we're saying, thank you, God, because this is actually assuring me that I belong to you, that I'm good soil. So I hope that your self-assessment takes you to Jesus for comfort, that his word is sufficient for you to grow the beautiful and delicious fruit of obedience in your life.